0: I'm Jana Marin, and you're listening to Season 3 of More to the Story, the podcast that's all about creative nonfiction and the power of sharing your personal story.
1: Tell me a story, tell me true, I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue, tell me a story and I'll I'll tell mine to you.
0: Welcome to More to the Story, Season 3, Episode 6, the show all about something near and dear to my heart telling true stories without shame and sharing them with the world. In addition to this podcast, I also publish a literary magazine called Under the Gum Tree, dedicated to creative nonfiction and visual art. The magazine is published quarterly in digital and print. If you enjoy the readings on this show, I encourage you to check out the complete stories by purchasing a single issue or getting a subscription. Your purchase directly supports the work of the artists and writers we publish, Digital subscriptions are $20 a year and print subscriptions are $80 a year. All that info is online at underthegumtree.com. And you can also find out about my work as a book editor and coach for nonfiction authors at jannamarlise.com. On today's episode of More to the Story, I'm joined by Christy Robin Johnson. She is an educator, essayist, and poet from Augusta, Georgia. Christy is the current chair of the Department of Humanities at Georgia Military College's Augusta campus, where she is an assistant professor of English. A graduate of the MFA Creative Writing Program at Georgia College and State University, Christie's writing has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and has received other awards and recognition, including an AWP Intro to Journals Award, the 2020 Porter Fleming Prize for Nonfiction, and the 2021 Page Prize for Nonfiction from the Pinch Literary Journal. Her work has been published in numerous literary magazines, journals, and anthologies, and her first book, High Cotton, was released in 2020 by Raised Voices Press. I spoke with Christy on May 14th, 2020. Her book came out in August 2020, which is why you hear us referring to the book available for pre-order and that it's about to be released. It is available, so please go check out her book from Raised Voices Press. Also, May 14th was not long after the news about Ahmaud Arbery's murder went viral, but just 11 days before George Floyd was murdered. So you will hear us talking in this conversation about Ahmaud Arbery's murder, but that's why you don't hear us referencing George Floyd's murder, because it hadn't happened at the time of our conversation. Christy is also a former Under the Gumtree contributor. Her essay, In Search of Heroes, appears in issue 27 of Under the Gumtree, published in April 2018. And before we get to the interview, here is Christy reading from that essay, In Search of Heroes.
2: In Search of Heroes. The first Christmas that my son could write, list for Santa read as follows. A purple wolf, boxing gloves, Power Rangers, and his superpowers. When he gave me the list, I reviewed it with amazement and a small dose of parental pride. At only three years old, likened himself to Jesus Christ or Superman, having enough confidence to believe himself to be a demigod among near-earthmen. Looking at the world through his eyes and tethering myself to his unfettered imagination became my favorite pastime flying with him through alternate universes where he could be the world's richest Pokemon collector and the quarterback of the Denver Broncos and the youngest American Ninja Warrior champion all at once. Inspired by his natural loftiness and ostentatious self-esteem, my dreams became bigger, bolder. For a while, he seemed unstoppable. But even Superman had kryptonite. Even Jesus had the cross. Something happened around the time he entered third grade, an awakening and awareness as if he'd taken a bite of forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He came home from school one day lamenting, I hate my school. Not I hate school, but I hate my school. Those four words triggered a tsunami of terrible in my brain Statistics and research-based data began to run in a ticker tape across my consciousness. Governments predict the number of prison cells they will need based on third-grade standardized test scores. One in three African-American males will be adjudicated in the criminal justice system at some point in their lives. Black boys are viewed as older and therefore less innocent than white boys. My heart palpitated at each thought. Trying my best to quell the panic, I replied, "Baby, why do you say that? There are no black people at my school. What are you talking about? There are lots of black kids at your school and Latino kids and biracial kids. One of your classmates even has two mommies. I'm not talking about the kids. None of the teachers are black. The only black grown-ups are the custodians. Speechless, I didn't know how to respond. His worldview was coming into focus, his eyes balked at the sight, and the blame belonged to me. In search of that elusive better, better schools, better homes, my husband and I chose to make our home in the suburbs long before our son was born. Like any parents, we wanted to give him the best opportunities possible. But almost a decade later, divorced and standing in the middle of my four bedroom, Two and a half bathroom, fenced in, two car garage, American dream in a nice neighborhood in a highly ranked school district. I realized that in trying to provide the best life for my son, I had deprived him of something crucial the opportunity to build a positive racial identity. I and my degrees had not sufficed. His dad and his relentless work ethic had not been enough. His village, Made up of black professionals, professors, and politicians, did little to combat the 180 days a year he spent immersed in an environment where all of the adults who looked like him, whose hair curled and lips plump and skin tanned like his, were the help. The nameless, faceless ghosts who blended into the background like the dulling paint on the walls, silent reminders of the odds he faces. In his own brown skin, he uncovered one of his greatest obstacles, the first nick in his tiny armor. It is a pivotal question for the parents of African-American children. How and when do you tell them the truth about their black lives? What words do you find while looking your beautiful and fragile brown sons and daughters in their eyes to tell them that they are indeed second-class citizens? How do you admit to them that the world isn't fair, the playing field not even? First, you let your heart break a little. Then you breathe. Then you decide whether you will teach them to pursue lives that are liberating and dangerous, or lives that are polite and caged. For me, the difference was between surviving and thriving. I preferred thriving, and I chose to teach my son liberty.
0: Thank you, Christy, and welcome to More to the Story. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So i like to start first with learning about your background and your interest in creative nonfiction in particular and what brought you to writing in that genre.
2: So if I'm being completely honest, My first love was poetry. And I considered myself a poet from the time I was a young teenager, 13, 14. Hip hop was kind of my first introduction to literature in a weird way, because it was the first time I I saw myself in art. And rappers are writers. Um, They're songwriters primarily, primarily. And so a lot of what happens in hip hop happens in poetry. And so that was an entrance for me. Um, I began writing essays almost just kind of as a function of journaling, really learning to cope with um, a lot of things that were going on in my life, especially as a young teenager. Um, And I became a really young mother as well and just kind of writing letters to my unborn child. So that's really kind of where creative nonfiction came into play and um, how I ended up beginning thinking of myself as a poet and ending up being an essayist. When I applied to the MFA program at Georgia College and State University in Milledgeville, I submitted two applications. One was a poetry portfolio. The other was an essay portfolio. And they took the essay. <laughs> so, oh, wow.
0: That's interesting. How did you feel about
2: that? I was happy. I was happy to get in. Like, I was sure. 100% happy to get in and you know, fully funded. That's a wonderful feeling. Uh, but I also felt like, well, am I not a poet? <laughs> you know, have I been doing the wrong thing this entire time? And so as I uh, entered Georgia College, my primary field was creative nonfiction and my secondary was poetry. Mm-hmm. So I spent my three years there writing essays and writing personal essays. Mm-hmm. And so here I am and I I call myself an essayist and then a poet. But to be true, like, poetry was kind of my first love. I kind of feel like I'm cheating on her a little
0: bit. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, people often ask me whether we accept poetry at Under the Gum Tree. And I usually say no, but we do accept flash nonfiction, which is sometimes a crossover or like a close cousin of prose poetry. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of overlap between poetry and nonfiction, I think.
2: There is there's a tremendous amount. I think people don't often realize that. I think that they're of the genres, I think they're the closest two. I think they have the most in common. Poetry mm-hmm. is so personal and right. creative nonfiction, you know, comes from life. So right. the things that inspire my poems are also the same things that inspire essays. So when
0: you started writing poetry, were you attempting hip hop and rap? Or was it more, more lyrical? Like what was your style?
2: When I first started, honestly, it was almost like scaffolding Maya Angelou. Like to be completely honest, like Maya Angelou, then I kind of fell in love with the Harlem Renaissance writers. I had an English teacher in high school, Miss Jimenez, and she kind of introduced me to the Harlem Renaissance writers. And so Langston Hughes, County Cullen, in terms of poetry, Zora Neale Hurston, in terms of prose, right? And those first poems for me, it was kind of like what I imagined if Tupac, you know, or Biggie and Langston Hughes had a baby. Like so, <laughs> that's kind of how I imagine, you know, my first poems. Poetry, I think, over time actually has gotten better. Billy Collins has this saying that he says. Every poet has 200 bad poems that so they have to get out. And I think I got them out. Okay. <laughs> I, think I, got them out. I think I got my 200 <laughs> bad poems out over the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. And so what I've been writing now, I feel like it's much, much better. But it all kind of comes from those, those beginnings.
0: Yeah, so when you sit down to write, do you know ahead of time whether it will be a poem or an essay or do you write and then the writing itself tells you what form it's going to take?
2: Essays are really clear. When I get an idea for an essay, it's exceptionally clear. Like I know right away, okay, this this is going to be an essay. Poems I I can go back and forth with. To give a, a really good example, I have a blog on my website and my latest blog post was about the you know, and I'll just say the lynching of Ahmaud Arbery, which happened um, happened back in February, but it didn't get any um, news coverage until a few weeks ago. Right. It happened down here in Brunswick, Georgia. And it was so close to home. And to be quite, to be really frank, as a writer of color, I often get tired of writing about the same thing over and over again. So I try to find, like, okay, well, what's my angle? How do I approach this? Um, I don't want to be redundant. But I also want to stand on a certain truth. And so my angle was his murder is so particularly difficult to deal with because of COVID. And people are not able to gather. And the ability to gather is such a healing thing for folks. And not being able to do that really changes the way that we remember mod or, or the way that we kind of fight for it, justice for Ahmad, then there won't be any large rallies. That can't happen, right? So immediately I figured like, okay, well, how do we then memorialize him? You know, how, how do we memorialize him? How do we fight for him if we can't get him? And So that's what that turned out to be. And then still in the back of my mind, there's also a poem that came right away. I'm not sure about what the name of it is going to be yet. But the poem, I thought about this idea of sacrifice and, and black bodies. And I, and I thought about, in a way, comparing that to the biblical idea of Jesus sacrificing his body, almost kind of like a Last Supper type of thing. I don't know, it's weird. I get ideas from like, <laughs> But that's kind of my idea about the poem. And poems, I always have to write. Essays start on the computer, though. But poems start with a pen. Interesting.
0: And just hearing you talk about that, your response to that horrible experience and tragedy that we all, all are becoming aware of now. I'm also wondering if the difference between the essay and the poem for you is a little bit of a different emotional response. Do you feel that?
2: I think that's true. I think that's true. Essays, for me anyway, always kind of start from logic There's not, a tremendous amount of emotion. The emotion comes through, but they always kind of start from a place of logic. Essays for me are more political than poems. And so the poem will be less political, more emotional. Right. And, and the essay being far more political. Right,
0: right. Yeah, so I see that in your writing. I did start reading your book. I haven't quite finished it, so we'll get to the book, but I first want to talk about the piece you read, In Search of Heroes, and just tell me a little bit about how that essay came about for you.
2: So I was actually a student still in my MFA program at Georgia College, and during that time, um, my son, it's feels like it was so long ago, it was not that long ago, but he was not yet a teenager, which he is now, and that's a whole nother story. He was, you know, still young, still, you know, still cute. And I was really, really trying to encourage him to read more. And that was kind of one of my goals. And so we had this, and we still do, we actually still do. Like we read at least like one book together. Every semester, like for him that he's in school, like we try to read one thing, one title together. And so, I, and I questioned myself when I first the idea, but I went with it. I wanted to read a narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, mainly because he had had a school assignment about Frederick Douglass, and the history was very watered down, I think is the sure. best. <laughs> Sure, and the black parent, I really didn't appreciate that, and I felt like, no, I've got the real story right here from the man himself. Let's read it. He was young. He was he was super young, but he was a pretty good reader, and so we read, read it together. And there was kind of this thing that changed in him that I noticed over our week of reading the narrative of of the life of Frederick Douglass that I hadn't noticed in him before. From then on, I was like, okay. Not only are we going to read, but we're going to try to read a black male author if we can. So that kind of it was the start of a tradition. So, but that's where the idea come from. And so while I, while we were reading that together, I would go to class in Millersville and talk with my colleagues and just kind of share, you know, like what's going on with your life, type of things. And someone said, you know, that would make a good essay. And I was like, you know what? Maybe so. <laughs> and so
0: <laughs> yeah. So how I think you say in the piece that your son was nine at the time. He was, yeah. And h- how old is he now?
2: He is thirteen. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> He's so cute, just in a different way. Ah, <laughs> uh, totally different. Totally different. It's harder for me to see it, but I think other people see it, but yeah,
0: yeah, so does what does he remember about that experience reading that book with you?
2: You know what? He and I have not talked a lot about it since mm. you know we we haven't like gone back and, and reflected on it. He still does not enjoy reading. He reads with me just because he knows it's a thing that I you know he he humors me, mm. <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's a great question. I will probably go ask him after <laughs> this interview.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, was that experience the first time that race had come up with him?
2: No, no, nah, okay. no, nah, not at all. Um, just in the sense that he recognized the absence of adults, you know, right. of color, um, but certainly not. One reason is because I, I will say this, I'm a, I've always been very frank about those issues, and I've never tried to hide them from my kids in, in any way, you know, um, decide when and where or how to talk about the world, you know, with their kids. And uh, my mother was always an open book with me, um, for better or for worse. She never pulled punches and she never hit anything. And so, and I feel like that I benefited in a way from that. And so I, I try to do the same with my sons. hmm So
0: how have you continued that conversation as he's gotten older? Does, is it changed or does he have more to say about it now that he's a little older, anything like that?
2: Uh, Yes. Yes. He's, he's definitely more vocal and, and social media was not, you know, there was no Facebook. There there were no camera phones at all when I was coming up. So, you know, it had to be big enough to hit the national news, like Rodney King, right? or the riots in Watts or something like that when I was coming up. But now with him, with as often as we see it, this 24 hour news cycle and everybody's got a camera phone. So it's just it's not that it's happening more. It's just that we're seeing it more. Right. It's 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 just very present in his life in a way that it wasn't in mine. So we're kind of forced to address it, uh, like Ahmad Aubrey, right? We participated together in 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 a run, right? And we talked about it. And mm-hmm. he he actually he also and that's my youngest son. He also plays tennis. And one of the neat things we pulled up at um, a tennis lesson one day, and his coach came out and he. It was kind of, you know, it's in the news and he kind of brought it up his coaches, is a white man. And he actually, and this was so profound to me. He actually said, he's like, I can't imagine what it's like for Patrick being a young African-American male to have to kind of live this. Right. Yeah. And so I really like, I really like that we live in a world where we can have those type of conversations because that was, that was not a thing that my mother could ever expect to have that type of conversation with a white person. So I really appreciate that. That helps me appreciate how far we've come. We've got a long way to go, but those Mm -hmm. types of things give me hope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree and hear you on that. I mean, I don't have kids, but I can't even imagine what it would be like to have to have those kind of conversations with young, young people. You know, it's, it's not something that they should have to go
2: through. Precisely. Yeah. You try to mitigate it as you can, but I think for him, it'll be character building and you know, he'll mm-hmm. grow stronger and prayerfully, you know, if not in his lifetime, maybe his kid's lifetime, mm-hmm. things will markedly get better. You know, that's always the hope in the prayer.
0: Yeah. Well, and from my perspective, I think that the storytelling is one of the most powerful tools that we have to help enact some of that change. So I, I really commend you for doing that work. It's not always easy work, but it's super important work. So let's talk about the book because that's coming out soon. Yay. And congratulations for having the book you. complete and out. That's a big accomplishment. It's an essay collection and you're exploring your family lineage, five generations of African-Americans in Georgia. So tell me a little bit about how, you can talk more about the book itself and just how it came together for you.
2: So the book is actually, so this is, uh, if anybody's listening, if they tell you, you will never publish your MFA thesis, that's a lie. So this book started, <laughs> as, awesome. it, it started as my MFA thesis. I went into the MFA thinking, I had a whole idea. Like I knew what I wanted to write. I mentioned I have two sons, my oldest son, is 20 this year. Um, He has autism. And that's been an exceptionally unique experience. And I thought, okay, I will write about that. And as I started writing about it, it just was not working. I would submit pieces through workshop. And it just, there was just something that was not clicking about trying to tell that story. And it's not that I would never tell it, but it just wasn't working at the time. I started writing other, you know, other essays. And I noticed that the essays that had to do with intersectionality, kind of where your identities, your multiple identities intersect, whether where they hit one another, you know. So, as you know, being female, being black, being a single mother, being a college student even at the time, and, and a returning college student at that, because I was like one of the older ones there, <laughs>
1: um,
2: you know. And um, so, what I noticed was the. Writing was the strongest where I examined those particular intersections of life. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up with kind of not what I had intended to do at all, what turned out to be like more of a patchwork collection of essays about life. Um, they're really near memoir essays. That, that's kind of how it really came, up, it came about. It, it came about purely by accident, by my first idea just not working.
0: Hmm. So what's interesting to me about this is not only did you get your MFA thesis published, but it's a collection of essays, which kind of common knowledge in the writing world is that essay collections are harder to get published.
2: That's what everybody <laughs> said. Um, yeah. That's what everybody says. So I will say I was blessed. Raise, voice, press does nothing but create nonfiction. So okay. right there, you know, we already... <laughs> already kind of didn't have to worry about, you know, places not wanting essay collections. And the other thing is they're small, they're small publishers. So it's not the same as like Random House or anything like that, but there's a lot of blessings. And being with a small publisher, there's kind of this wonderful hands-on connection that I get to have with the publisher. They really care. They genuinely care about the art. That's been a really wonderful experience.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you found the perfect fit for you. (laughs) When you're compiling an essay collection, how do you decide what essays to include and then how to order them for the book?
2: The order changed so many times. The one thing that became really apparent though was that the lead essay, Dope, that had to be first. It just, most of the time we're always like, oh, I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know if it's good or not. But every now and then, like, you know, once a year, <laughs> you'll get something down, and you're like, "Yes, this this is it." And so dope, I had that. I had a really strong feeling about that. So I knew as soon as um, I got it out, and it was originally published in Lunch Ticket, that like that would be that that would definitely be the first like right, the lead essay. But as far as everything else, man, we probably changed four or five times the um, <laughs> the the order. Yeah, and the order I think when a person picks up this book it really won't I'll be completely honest it won't have a true rhyme or reason I think that folks can say hey but what we we went with the strongest obviously and then it does kind of walk through what I'm dealing with emotionally so there's kind of an emotional thread that happens there but it's purposefully not sectioned off. I originally, when I actually sent the manuscript out, that's how I sent it. And that was one of the first things that the editor did with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, you mean it was sectioned kind of like grouped by theme or something like that? Group. Yeah. In my mind, okay. I had it
2: grouped by theme and that was one of the first things to go.
0: <laughs> okay. Interesting. That's interesting. And <laughs> I'm glad, but I'm glad. Yeah. And you feel like the the that dope, the first essay, the opening essay, is that were Were you so certain that it was the opening essay because it's a it's about your young childhood experience, so it kind of like lays the groundwork and sets things up for the rest or what what was it about that essay that was so clear to you about it being the opening?
2: Well, one thing yeah it is so it does start with a, a childhood memory with a really early memory right um so I did like that. I liked that of where it starts from the emotion that I had in writing it though was so profound and that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you're just writing because it's like, I gotta get, I gotta get 2,500 words, just God make it happen. But sometimes when you're writing, it, it's kind of as though something is is moving through you. And I feel like I had that experience um, when writing though. I think, I think it was, I don't know, and you might correct me. It, it, um, I think it was Robert Frost who said, um, no tears in the writer, no tears on the page. Or something to that effect yes and, Yeah. And so this was one that there was tears in the writing. i've never read aloud and i'm scared to read it aloud so when i mm-hmm. knew it was that powerful for me i i felt like i was sure that the reader would catch that yeah if you're
0: scared to read it out loud that means you probably should
2: Okay.
0: (laughs) right I think that a writer's life often has that's one of the things that compels us as writers is as Mm -hmm. soon as there's something that we're afraid of that that's an indication that we need to address it and go after it and try to tackle it in our writing or in sharing
2: it you know so I, I will take that, I will take that into, um, <laughs> I will take that into account. And if I end up pleat blizzard an idiot, when I do read it aloud, it will be your fault. Okay. And I will let you know.
0: <laughs> well, just practice ahead of time. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Even if that happens, it's it will be a meaningful experience for the audience, yeah. I think. That's probably, that's true. So you're an essayist and a poet. Have you ever
2: attempted long form? No, um, but I will. I will in a memoir. Like that, that's that's the big project. And really, and and speaking of dope, the memoir is is basically a spinoff of dope. Like uh, just my years, basically from the time I was born to the time that my mother died. And that's definitely a plan. I don't know how long it'll take. I've gotten some stuff down. That's kind of my goal in the next 24 months is to try to see that through. But that will be you know, a memoir from beginning to end. Be mm-hmm. My first long project. Okay. Is that the next project? Um, I think so. Okay. Poetry has been calling me lately. Okay. And, I, and I've been getting a lot of poems down too. Poetry is therapeutic and i've always told myself in order to get this memoir down a few things in my life needed to be structured one thing i I really wanted my kids to be older and that is happening i can't stop that the other therapy um to write this thing i I knew i was going to need therapy Mm -hmm. that is happening i also wanted to be in a relationship and that is kind of happening Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> so with all those things kind of in play, I think it's kind of like the universe saying, well, this is what you asked for, Christy Robin, write the memoir. Yeah. So trying to get it down. Like that's the goal.
0: I totally agree and think that therapy is important especially when you're doing a memoir. So good on you for taking that step, but I mean that's my perspective, of course. So just tell me a little bit why you felt like that was important for you.
2: So I think Most memoir, most folks who tackle a memoir will probably agree. You got to go to a place that you probably are afraid of going to. Mm -hmm. Kind of, kind of what you just mentioned, right? Yeah. And so there's a shame that has to be lifted off a a lot of things. I think a lot of people think that you know a lot of terrible. You know, you have to have a life full of terrible um, experiences to write a memoir, and that's not true. I've had some trauma. I've had a lot of stuff for sure. But I've read memoirs that you know, nothing cataclysmic happened, right? Nothing, there was no apocalypse, you know, no people dying and things like that. But there was still so compelling of the truth of the author. You can tell that they went there. And in a memoir, you do have to be able to go there. So therapy was one of the first things that, actually one of my mentors mentioned, if you're going to write a memoir, you're probably going to need therapy. Yeah. And so- that has turned out to be true. And yeah. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely find that therapy is helpful for going to the places where you need to go, like you were saying. And then what I have found too, is you don't necessarily process everything in a therapy session, but it mm-hmm. gets started there. And then I would go home and write and kind of finish what I started in therapy or in a roundabout way, just, just, find a find a way to cuz i don't want to say like make sense of it all cuz it's not like you go home and write and like figure it all out but it's still a way to at least come to terms with it i guess is
2: a good way of saying it exactly you could be honest with yourself right. right and that's the thing that i i noticed that, that really shifted like a, after a therapy session and you sit down and write you can it's it's like seeing yourself naked but you're okay with
0: it and right. and,
2: and and you get it down on the page so that so that's how for me, that, that's how it's been. Those moments that I probably, either I would not have written them at all or I would have tried to sugarcoat it so much it would have been terrible on the page that w- without the therapy. With the therapy, it's like I can be exceptionally clear, exceptionally honest, and you owe your reader that. If there is a piece of advice that I could give to a student or anybody who is thinking about tackling a memoir, the therapy helps a lot.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I echo that. I second that 100%. <laughs> so we're winding down. Thank you so much, Christy, for your time today. Tell me where folks can find more about you and your work online.
2: Okay, so you can uh, find more, find out more about me and my work at christyrobinjohnson.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-E-R-O-B-I-N-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. I had to spell out the Christie because my mother deliberately tried to trick people. Um, <laughs> so it's a K and an IE, uh, but ChristyRobinJohnson.com to pre-order High Cotton um, the release date is the official publication date is August the 4th, but um, to pre-order it, it's available now actually at Amazon, bookshop.org, anywhere books are sold, but also at raisedvoicepress.com.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Christy. It's been great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Christy Robin Johnson. Visit her online at christyrobinjohnson.com and find the links and info from today's episode in the show notes online at moretothestorypodcast.com. If you're looking for a place to find more support with writing your true personal story, let me tell you about the More to the Story community. The More to the Story community is a free and safe space online for nonfiction authors to connect with each other, hone their craft, share their experiences, and make real progress on their projects. You'll connect with me and my team of editors, but you'll also connect with other writers just like you. Visit janamarlees.com slash community for more info and to request to join. I hope you'll join me. I would love nothing more than to support your writing journey of telling your story without shame. Next time on More to the Story, I talk with Nicole Walker. We talk about climate change and science and how Nicole ended up as a writer instead of a scientist. To subscribe to this podcast, go to itunes.com slash more to the story. While you're there, leave a review. I love feedback. I love hearing from you. And it helps other nonfiction writers just like you find the show. More to the Story is produced out of my home office in Sacramento, California. Special thanks to my husband, Jeremy Marin, who wrote and performed the theme song. You can visit us online at moretothestorypodcast.com. Follow Under the Gumtree on Instagram and Twitter at Under Gumtree. I'm Jana Marin. Just Jana on Twitter, Jana Marlise everywhere else. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of More to the Story.
1: Tell me a story, tell me true. I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out, and the night is so blue. Tell me a story, and I'll, I'll tell mine to you. Sitting on the balcony, drinking up our wine Talking about the way that we used to live our lives The words in the books, man, they're nothing but lines I look into your eyes and you look into mine You say, tell me a story Tell me true, I want to know what happened to you. The stars are all out and the night is so blue. Tell me a story and I'll tell mine to you.